For most of her life, Osceola McCarty went unnoticed. She was born in 1908 in a rural part of Mississippi, nine months after her mother had been violently attacked. Osceola was raised by her grandmother and aunt, and they cleaned houses and did laundry in order to survive. Osceola herself started working at a young age to help her family. Her childhood dream was to become a nurse, but in grade six, she ended up dropping out of school so she could go take care of her aunt who had become sick. She never returned to school. And for the next 75 years, and no, I did not make a mistake, for the next 75 years, Osceola worked as a laundry woman, washing and ironing clothes by hand until arthritis forced her to retire. She had tried just for a brief period automatic cleaning machines, but she said those just did not do the job. When she retired at age 87, she did something no one saw coming, putting aside just a little bit of money from her savings account to live off. She donated the rest, the majority of her life savings, $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi. Osceola never made much as a laundry woman, but starting at age eight, she'd started putting aside a dollar here, a dollar there, saving it all up in order to give it all away. She wanted her gift to go to students who were in financial needs so that they could get the education that she never was able to have. And as word got out about Osceola's extraordinary gift, other people began contributing to the fund. Today, over 130 students have received life-changing scholarships. Here's what I love about her story. It took years to unfold. It didn't just happen overnight. It didn't come because of extraordinary circumstances. She didn't win the lottery. She didn't inherit the money herself. It was simply a year-after-year process. And it didn't come from a person you'd ever expect. Her story is about showing up day in, day out, year after year, in ordinary ways. And yet something extraordinary happened through that after years of waiting. Her gift and her life ended up changing many other lives. In a lot of ways, Osceola's story reminds me of the story of Advent, as we just heard, Advent is the story that comes before the Christmas story. It's about all those long years of waiting until the moment finally arrives where God enters the world. I think it's safe to say that we all love the coziness, the beauty of the Christmas story, don't we? Angels and shepherds and a cute baby in a manger. But that story didn't just happen on its own. It was formed through the lives and the stories of all of the previous generations that formed and shaped the direction hundreds and hundreds of years in the making. In the opening words of the New Testament in Matthew's gospel, we're given a list of the members of Jesus' human family. It's his genealogy. Most of them are people that we don't know much about. Most of them have names that we can't pronounce. Most of us would probably fall asleep if we went through and read the actual list right now. But there are some familiar names in the genealogy. Abraham and Isaac, David and Solomon. And then there are five names that jump off the page. 
the names of five extraordinary women. Five women of resilient faith and courage. Five women who end up shaping the destiny of Jesus' own life and family. Mary, Bathsheba, Ruth, Rahab, Tamar. It was unusual for a woman's name to be included in an ancient genealogy like this because patriarchy was very much at work. Women weren't often recognized and noticed or given much of a public voice. And so for their names to be included here in this list tells us, hey, we need to sit up and pay attention. Unfortunately, the five women have often been linked to this idea of scandal where they've often been seen and named as scandalous people because of their behavior and actions. Let me tell you, it's an unfair perspective. Because when you start digging into the stories, a lot of times it's actually the men around them who cause the actual scandal. And yet it's the women who unfortunately bear the stigma and the shame. And just for the record, even though we've just completed a series on resilient faith, I would argue that these five women have just as much resilient faith and courage as all those other characters that we've talked about. In fact, I'd say that they're probably even stronger and more courageous. Well, this morning we're going to introduce the first woman in Jesus' family history and family line. It's the story of Tamar, or Tamar, which is the Hebrew pronunciation. I want to read the first three verses from Matthew chapter 1, and then I'm going to retell her story. This is the family tree of Jesus Christ, David's son, Abraham's son. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah and his brothers, Judah had Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Just out of curiosity, quick show of hands, how many of you have heard the story of Judah and Tamar? few people. Probably not a good sign, but this is one of the top 10 stories that preachers tend to avoid talking about. It's also one of those stories that parents tend to skip over. Uh, If you grew up in a Christian home and maybe you did family Bible time and it's like, well, let's start at the beginning and Genesis chapter one, creation story. That's a great story, isn't it? Creation. And then you move along and Noah, most of it, I mean, it's kind of a cute story, at least the first part where animals go in by twosies. Then you've got Abraham, who's a person of great faith, and, and Joseph, of course, he's got the amazing technicolor dream coat, right? That, which is awesome, amazing. And then we get to uh, Judah and Tamar, and we're like, oh, woman dresses up as prostitute to have a baby with her father-in-law. You know what? We're just going to skip story time tonight, kids. We're going to just keep moving along. Here's the problem with skipping stuff or picking and choosing only the good and comfortable parts, you might just miss out on an important defining piece of the story. So even though this story is awkward and messy, may make us squirm a bit, or leave us with more questions than answers, that's totally okay, because God has allowed it here for a reason. Not only that, this is Jesus' own history. This is part of his story. These are his relatives, let that sink in for just a moment. Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. It's a long chapter, has a lot of explicit details. And so for today, I want to simply retell her story in such a way that honors her life and also affirms her important place in the family line of Jesus. Here it is. 
Abraham, the founding father of the nation of Israel, is long gone. It's now his great-grandchildren, all 12 of them, who are now taking the mantle of the family, and they are living out the next chapter. Judah is one of those 12 sons. He doesn't know it yet, but his family line will become the royal bloodline that will produce kings such as David and Solomon. But for now, his story begins with his own marriage to a foreign woman from the land of Canaan. Eventually, Judah has three sons. The first son grows up and, like his father, marries a Canaanite girl named Tamar. We don't know how long that they were married, but the Bible says that he died suddenly because of his evil behavior. According to Jewish legend, he refused to fully consummate his marriage to Tamar because he was afraid that she would lose her beauty if she got pregnant. Just super messed up. He dies. She becomes a widow. And what happens next? Well, it wouldn't fly today for obvious reasons, but according to the ancient customs of that time, she's to be married off to the next son, her brother-in-law. You can feel the ooh factor a bit. reason for this is simple, though. It's for her protection as a widow, so she could be taken care of and also produce an heir for the estate. Because in the ancient world, children were really seen as the retirement plan. They would carry on the family business. They would care for aging parents. They really represented a person's future. So to not have a child is very serious. And so Tamara is married off, and history repeats itself. Tragically, a similar thing happens in this marriage. Her brother-in-law doesn't want to have a child with Tamar because it would be considered his brother's child, not his own. And it would actually reduce his share of the inheritance. And so the second son uses Tamar for his own sexual gratification, but at the same time also intentionally prevents her from getting pregnant. And chapter is really explicit on details. It's not an easy story to read or to process, but here's the point. Tamar was being used by these men for their own gratification. Can you imagine what this must have done for Tamar? Being used as an object, not as a person. Ultimately being denied her own right to have children. And so there must have been all sorts of desperation that surrounded her story, this disappointment, this degrading that she experiences as a person. She's feeling hurt and grief and humiliation. I can't even begin to fathom the amount of trauma and pain that she must have been going through. Well, once again, the second son also dies. One more son. Judah says, not about to lose this one. And so he sends Tamar back to her family and says, stay there until my last son's grown up and then you can marry him. But what he's really saying is, you're never coming back. Tamar is in this really vulnerable place right now because without children and without the protection of her husband's family, which is ironic given how she had been treated, she is literally left on her own to fend for herself, to provide for her. No hope, no future. More time passes. Judah's wife dies. And Tamar realizes that Judah is not going to keep his word. 
or keep his promise. And so she decides to do something about it. She finds out he's going to be in the local area, so she disguises herself as a prostitute. And it sounds wrong. It sounds strange to us, but we need to understand she had no other options. She was desperate. Judah sees her, doesn't recognize her, and he ends up sleeping with her. Three months later, word gets out. Tamar's pregnant. Judah's furious. He knows she shouldn't be pregnant, especially since he also knows she's not married to his last son. And so filled with this righteous smugness and hypocrisy, Judah calls for her to come forward and demands for her to be burned at the stake. This is in the Bible. This is how crazy. Aren't you guys glad you came this Sunday? <laughs> Bet you were not. That was not on anyone's bingo card today. It's a crazy story. But before she can be put to death, Tamar confronts Judah and reveals, big reveal, he's the father. Everyone is taken by surprise. And Judah finally realizes what's happened. He recognizes and realizes that Tamar should have been protected all along, that her rights as a widow should have been defended and taken care of, that she had every right to a child and a future. To Judah's credit, he does confess his wrongdoing and his guilt. And he also declares that Tamar's actions are righteous and just. See, we can look at her story and think, how can God be okay with Tamar's actions here? But the reality is, throughout the scripture, her actions, her response are only seen in a positive light. So why is Tamar's story so important? Because she was willing to fight, not only for her life, but for the life and the rights of her future family. She was fighting for the protection of her family line, even though in reality it still did not exist. But she showed strength and courage as she fought for what she knew was right and true. In her story, we see some of the very first glimpses of that theme for justice that will later come to define Israel's history. That would later become the thread throughout the entire Bible for justice that we are to embrace as followers of Jesus where God's people are commanded to look after the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the immigrant who's in our midst, that we are called to care for them and protect them, to welcome and include them and anyone else who is on the margins to bring them into God's family. Judah didn't do that. His son certainly didn't do that. But it took a foreigner and a woman of great courage and resilient faith to see what he couldn't see, to speak up when no one else would, to become this advocate for justice in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. That's what makes Tamar's story so remarkable, so significant. But the story's not quite done. Tamar is pregnant with twins. And when they are born, the one who will carry the bloodline all the way down to Jesus is named Perez. Perez means to break through. How amazing is that? 
It's this declaration that God is not finished with Tamar's story. Even though she had lived her entire life in this waiting posture of Advent, of waiting for something to happen, now she experiences a breakthrough that changes everything. It changes her life. It changes her future. It changes her destiny. How many know that God can use the awkward, messy situations of our lives to create and birth breakthroughs in us? even when it doesn't make sense, even when the timing seems off, even when it shouldn't happen. Maybe you're sitting in a place of disappointment today, of grief. Maybe you're waiting. I want to tell you, there is hope. may not feel like it right now. may feel like it's impossible. It may feel like you are waiting and that you're at a dead end. But God can bring a breakthrough into your life because he is a God of hope and a God of our future. Tomorrow's story is this beautiful reminder of that truth and that reality. And while we may not be able to apply her story the way we do other biblical stories, I do think that there are some connection points that we can make today. First, I think it serves as a powerful reminder that this is Jesus' own story. He is connected to it in a very real way. The Christmas story isn't just about angels and shepherds and a cute baby in a manger. It comes through the stories of broken and flawed people. And yet God isn't afraid to enter the messiness and the rawness of the story. He doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't try and pretend that it doesn't exist, but he includes it all with all of the details. And in retelling Tamar's story and Rahab's story and Ruth's story and all of the stories over and over again, it grounds us in the reality of a God who isn't afraid to step into our lives and into our world. Reminds us that the story God is writing may take a long time, may not happen overnight. And so when life can seem to be falling apart or when things are uncertain or when it, things, it feels like life just doesn't make sense, or maybe when we're holding on to a dream or a promise and it hasn't come to pass yet, we remind ourselves that God is still writing the story. That's why the story of Advent is so important. So vital to the Christmas story because we hold on to the hope that in the waiting, God is working. I believe in the power and the beauty of story. That we all have a story. That we are all connected by our stories. And that we get to be part of the bigger, the better story of God working through Jesus. I believe in story so much that four years ago, I did something I never thought I would do, and I got inked with my favorite word, story. It is the word that has most defined me, most inspired me, most picked me up in this journey of life. It's this reminder that even out of the ashes and the disappointment of life, I can keep going because the next Chapters of my life have not been written yet. I can keep holding on to hope. O.C.L.M. McCarty waited her entire life 
to experience the fullness of the gift that she would bring to others. Tamar waited her entire life to experience the fullness of the gift of her children that would birth kings and ultimately birth the king of the universe. I think Tamar's story can give us hope. That in the midst of whatever it is that we are going through, the waiting is preparing us for a breakthrough. It's been said, God can take the messiness of our lives and turn it into a message of hope and an experience and a reality of hope. Amen.